Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 30th, 2018. This is episode 2,228. It's Wednesday, and we are back on our regularly scheduled programming. That means it is time for an interview show. I have a guy on the line uh, we'll be bringing on in just a moment. His name is David Bernard. Uh, he's a cool dude. He's been part of our community for a long time. He's also followed other great people like Elliot Coleman, Jean-Martin Fortier, and Curtis Stone in his journey to full-time farming. But his journey really started out with prepping. And uh, he's, he's made some changes over the years. He's here to talk to us about all of those. Things like how he uh, got into farming and how prepping led him there. His experience taking a PDC with Jeff Lawton. Uh, the activities that they do on their farm, advice for anyone who is uh, wanting to acquire or build a small farm or homestead, uh, some things that he's learned from TSP and how that's impacted his life. So a story right out of our community. And I love doing interviews like this, people that you generally don't know who they are unless you've hooked up with them on the forum or something like that. And by the way, he has a uh, thread on our forum with over 20,000 views at this point, documenting his and his family's journey. And we'll have him on to talk about all of that and more in just a moment. Before we bring David on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. Uh, KnifeKits is an awesome company because they provide the anything from the raw materials to all the way up to a pure kit form. Uh, of, of knife building materials. So you can get just basically a blank piece of steel and work it all on your own, or you can get basically a knife blank that's just about ready to go. It needs a little final fit, form, and finish. Pick some handle material scales for it, uh, some pins and some things like that. Finish it off and sharpen it. You can get all the Kydex stuff you need to make your own sheets, leather stuff to make your own sheets. And so it can be for the very novice beginner. And if you're not sure where to go with that, there's tons of instructional videos on YouTube, but they have DVDs and books to help you along the way. You can call them up. Real people will answer the phone, help you make proper decisions and things like that. They do a discount for MSB. But if you're, like, kind of advancing as a bladesmith and you want raw materials that are, like, really exotic, they have stuff like Cape Buffalo Horn, Mammoth Tusk, and other really cool materials, Damascus Steel, etc., that you can work with. So check them out today if you haven't ever done so. KnifeKits.com, long-term sponsor, been with us not from the very beginning, but over eight years. That's a long time in the world of podcasting. Speaking of a long time in the world of podcasting, a company that's been with us almost since the very beginning. I think they were the third sponsor to sign up all the way back in 2009 when we started taking sponsors. Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click and buy on their website. Great pricing, great service, and great people. They have everything for your prepping needs, from guns to gardens, from practical to tactical, and everything in between. And they really excel at some of the stuff with alternative energy, solar, wind, appliances to work on DC circuits, etc. And they've got really great expertise. If you're trying to put together like a little off-grid cabin or something like that and you want some help, Give them a call. They'll help you pick out the right stuff, give you the resources that you need to get it done. I mean, resources is right in their name. Again, ready-made resources, the company that says what it does and does what it says at, you guessed it, readymaderesources.com. 
Next up, let's take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 135 A.D. in our walk through history with David Verne, who's taken the reins on the history segments at tspwiki.com. We have the Fall of Bethar. The fortress of Bethar was the last rebel stronghold in Judea, and it was filled with up to 200,000 refugees fleeing the Romans. The fortress was very similar to Masada, the last holdout of the First Jewish War, and was on a hilltop surrounded by a canyon on three sides. The siege lasted for a year and a half before, according to Jewish history, the walls were breached on Tisha B'Av, the Jewish day of mourning for the loss of the first and second temples. Everyone inside the fortress was massacred, and Barcaba's head was presented to Hadrian after the siege. According to the historian Cassius Dio, quote, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate, end quote. My take by David Verne. Many nations throughout history have been able to deal, deal out damage, but very few in the ancient and medieval eras could take a punch. Wars were decided with armies and a few thousand men on either side fighting one or two battles. Very few countries continue fight, could continue fighting a protracted war. But the few that could become superpowers for their time, Rome was one of these. During the Jewish revolt, they are also fighting the Alans, a nomadic tribe from the, from the steppe who threatened the empire and its allies. During the three Punic Wars, where Rome fought Carthage, their nemesis, Roman armies were annihilated and fleets were lost. But every time they lost an army, the Romans would raise another and eventually outlast the enemy. The Romans weren't using the tactic the Soviet Union used when they were just throwing men at the Germans and winning through attrition. This was more not losing the will to fight. People and nations have succeeded where, when they are able to get up again and again after every defeat and failure. Indeed. But what you find is the closer the decision makers are to war, and the decision maker is not really the politician, because I would say one thing about the Romans. Most of their emperors went into the fight. Now, that is something different than most other countries. But really, to raise a war, you, you have to have the support of your population. They have to give at least tacit consent to it, or it cannot be prosecuted because they're going to have to sacrifice in money and in goods for a time. And the further the people are from the battle, the less directly affected by it, the easier it is to obtain their consent. And that was one of the things Rome was able to do that many of the people they were fighting were not, because they were not fighting generally on Roman soil, they were fighting on the enemy's soil. So the will of the people in the land they were occupying was easier to break than the will of the Romans who weren't there. And this is how we do things today. We talk about supporting our troops, but most of the people that wave the big giant foam finger shouting we're number one and are okay with a war here or a war there haven't really examined the consequences of that war because the consequences do not directly affect them. And if they do believe it affects them, they believe it in the way that the TV told them to. If you want to see societies that had very limited war, not just in ancient times, but in relatively modern history, look at tribal societies. When a decision to go to war would result in the death of yourself and or the man and people next to you, you were a little less likely to enter into it unless it was a last resort. We could learn something from so-called primitive tribes. My take by Jack Spierko. With that, before we get David on, I want to make an announcement today. I'll tell you about the MSB up front today. You know, the MSB is a great deal. It's the Member Support Brigade, and it's how you can get discounts on over 70 different vendors' products of stuff you're probably buying anyway. 
And that means that our membership at $50 a year, which comes out to about $0.18 cents an episode, you say, hey, the show's worth $0.20 cents an episode. I'm willing to pay for it. And then get your money back by using these discounts. Generally, a few discounts will get you you know, all your money back for the year if you use them. Well, I just signed on another MSB supporter. Someone, you know, you kind of think would have happened a long time ago because he's a good friend. Uh, but we have a very similar membership program. So I guess it really didn't occur to either one of us to do this until now. But my buddy Brian Black and his wife Kelly were over at our house last weekend. And uh, we hung out and uh, had some drinks and smoked some cigars and drank some some really good bourbon. And Brian's like, hey, would you be interested in doing a discount for your members on my gear stuff? And I'm like, well, of course. So we talked about it. I got you guys a 12% discount at the ITS Tactical Store on all of the gear. The morale patches, the nylon gear, the med kits, the lock picking stuff, all the cool stuff that Brian has. You can get a discount now. 12%, and that's pretty dadgone good. Uh, again, that's one of those things, like if you look at some of like his higher-end bags and stuff like that, one discount could put most of your money back in your pocket for the year. So if you're not an MSB member yet, please consider becoming one. If you are a member and you've had your eyes on some stuff over at the ITS store, you now got a 12% discount. The discount is already in the benefits section of the MSB. With that, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest, David Bernard again. David and his wife, Tanya, live about an hour south of Raleigh, North Carolina. David's been a member of the TSP audience dating all the way back to 2008. That would be the beginning. And participates in the TSP forum under the name Dave in Broadway, North Carolina. In 2014, he began writing about the development of their homestead on the Homestead and Self-Reliant Living Message Board. And his subject, Homestead Layout, now has over 20,000 views at the TSP forum. Uh, he was, you know, it would, time marched on and Dave retired from the Army in October of 2017, took a job as a senior manager, but left that position in February to go ahead and farm full time. He's now an owner operator of Off Broadway Productions, employing market garden production methods inspired by Elliot Coleman, Jean Martin Fortier, and Curtis Stone. Dave joins us today to share his journey of preparedness and discuss how he and his wife have benefited from their many years of listening to TSP. And with that, hey, David, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jack. I- I'm glad to have you on, man. You've been you've been with us a long time. I was talking during the intro and said, you know, you've been listening to us since 2008. You you can't go further back than that in years. It's not possible. That was our, <laughs> that was our first year. So you're one of the, I don't know what part of the year you started listening, but one of the first couple thousand people at, at, the, at the most, you know. Um, but let's go back even before that, just so the audience can connect with David Bernard. Who, who is this dude, right? Like, so take us back your space and out in study hall in high school or something like that, checking some chick out, trying to figure out if you're going to answer out or not, and you're also trying to figure out what to do with your life. What was your, you know, professional life, and and how did it? How'd you get there? It's <laughs> a good question. Um, I, I'm one of those guys that. Um, yeah, it, it was just always assumed that I was going to go to college, um, not, not by family history, but by by what my performance was in high school. Um, my dad was a, a lifelong carpenter. Actually, he was a high school dropout. Um, my grandfather on his side worked odd jobs, and by the time he was in his 60s, he was working uh, in a bakery in the back of his house. And so, you know, we... We didn't have any kind of a professional background, but but I thought I was going to go to college um, and, and become a journalist. And uh, what wound up happening was uh, I couldn't get the student aid to the college that I really wanted. I went to the University of Maine up in Orono, Stephen King country. And uh, uh, I, 
in the dormitory, a bunch of ROTC cadets kept throwing ROTC propaganda under my door. And <laughs> one day they threw one in there talking about a three-year ROTC scholarship, and that got my attention um, because I didn't know how the hell I was going to pay for college. And, and that turned out to be a, a pretty good way to go. And, you know, 25 and a half years later, uh, you know, pretty good pension, pretty good livelihood, pretty good career. Um, I switched my uh, my major from journalism to uh, to microbiology. I figured after college there'd always be time to to you know get into writing on my own, but uh, only when I was at the university would I have access to all the all, all the the labs and 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 you know and and chemistry equipment and, and stuff to play with and you know had, had a pretty good time. Very cool, man. And uh, so you spent you just actually just recently retired from from the army, right? That's right. Um, October 2017 was my actual retirement date. Uh, I had a bunch of uh, leave accrued, and uh, I got myself a, a full-time job in the private sector that overlapped with my last two months of, of active duty. I was a chief operating officer for a, a, a small consulting firm about an hour and a half away. Um, company was in a little bit of trouble. They needed a guy to come in and, and you know, manage a turnaround, mission accomplished, and uh, went ahead and I, I quit that job or resigned from it. And uh, I've been attempting to farm full-time since about the end of February. Cool, man. Well, let's kind of back up a bit then with uh, the prepping thing because it kind of is what led you to farming. What got you started in prepping, you know, in the first place? I mean, a lot of times people get into prepping because they fear, like, job loss and stuff like that. And, I don't know, being in the military is about as secure a job as you can have. So what what led you down that path? I forget exactly when I picked up these two books, a book by Bill McKibben, Deep Economy, and a book by James Howard Kunstler, The Long Emergency. Um, and, and, and these two books really spoke to me about the fragility of um, uh, of the era that we're in and how everything could come, you know, falling down all at once with, with little or no notice. And you, you see glimpses of it when you have a, an explosion on it with a gas line in Alabama, and three days later you've got plastic bags on the gas pumps in North Carolina. Mm. Um, and so I just probably 15 years ago I, I started my awareness uh, started to increase about the need to uh, to to be a prepper and the need to to have some more resilience in my life than was the case and. Uh, you know what the military uh, culture is kind of like. You, you're a nomad. You, you can't put down roots, and uh, th- there's limitations to uh, to how secure you can be until you finally get to your last duty assignment. Um, and so I wound up in central North Carolina, just outside of Fort Bragg. And my last six years, uh, I was in and out of this area, but we always held on to this house. Uh, and I was back for most weekends if I wasn't here full time. And little by little, we uh, we started putting things in place. How did prepping lead to farming? That seems to be a, a common theme that I hear a lot of times. Yeah, well, food security is one of the the, the most uh, tangible things that you can point to and say, I'm doing something meaningful. Um, you, you can get firearms, and if you don't hunt... Uh, it's not like you've got body counts you can point to to say I, I, I was uh, an active and engaged prepper today. Um, 
but when you're planting a seed and you're going out there and you're picking something with your with your own uh, skills, your own hands, um, you know, there's it's meaningful. Gotcha, cool. So, how did you go about selecting your property and developing it into a working homestead? Yeah, this is a fun story. Uh, I mean, it's it's fun for me to tell it. Hopefully, it'll be a somewhat amusing for for the listener. Um, we started choosing this property, or or, or we started our, our hunt for this property when I was still in Iraq. So. I don't have any war stories. Uh, you know, I deployed as a senior officer. I was behind the wire all the time. I was a pretty much uh, you know, a, a businessman in fatigues, uh, which is if you're going to participate in warfare, uh, I highly recommend that approach. Um, so there I am at Camp Victory, and my wife and I are having regular Skype sessions, and we've got the real estate listings pulled up. And you know, we're just going through two, three hundred properties uh, every weekend, doing that for four or five months. Um, and then finally, I, uh, I stumble on the, uh, the, the GIS servers of, of some of the, uh, the municipalities around here, geographic information systems. And, uh, it's like, you know, bingo. You've got the soil profiles, you've got the zoning ordinances, all that stuff. And, um, for, for us, we knew we were going to come to Fort Bragg. The question was, where within a one-hour radius of Fort Bragg were we going to locate? Um, and so we were looking for zoning ordinances that would allow large livestock, um, zoning ordinances that would allow for um, farming and uh, um, selling right off your your, uh, your property in, in produce stands or farm stands. Um, and... Uh, and we were also looking for, you know, at the time I was, um, yeah, I've got two kids from my first marriage, so I was getting on a plane quite a bit going to see them. So we knew we wanted to be between Fort Bragg and, and Raleigh so we could get to the airport easily enough. Um, and an interesting thing about North Carolina, they have this thing called the ETJ. I've never seen it anywhere else, but the extraterritorial jurisdiction where you can be in a town but but just outside of the corporate jurisdiction. And uh, if you're a bona fide farm, then only the, the state laws apply to your farming activities. The the municipality can't shut you down. And if you're uh, the right to farm laws being what they are, uh, as long as you've been doing whatever you've been doing for a year plus, um, nobody that moves in after you can, can shut you down. So... Those were all factors that I was looking for and factors that I'm pleased to have in my favor down here. Yeah, it's it's nice to be in a place and know that what you're doing is, is acceptable to the state, whether you want to have to deal with that or not. I don't even think if you care if it's acceptable. Can they do anything about it, right? Because yep. I don't even care if my neighbors don't. I mean, I try to be a good neighbor. But if you want to say, well, I hate that. Oh, okay. As long as you can't get somebody to come make me stop doing it, I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, I'll do everything I can with, I guess you would call social design considerations and, you know, things like that to try to make things nice for people. But the one big fear I think anybody has to invest their time and money into a property is some man from the government coming to help you and make you feel better about life by making you sad, right? That's right. Well, we are going to have some, some government uh, sanctioned sadness uh, coming upon us in the next year or so, imminent domain. So, you know, good news, bad news story. The uh, 
the good news is this area is growing and we're going to endeavor to pay the bills through farming. So some additional traffic is always a good thing. And the, the bad thing is we've got about a half acre that's going to be skimmed from our property line about 20 feet deep. Um, I think it's going to be a net win for us. Uh, but, but one of the things I, I'm really proud about is we did put in about a half acre food forest. Um, and, uh, probably about a third of that is going to get mowed down. Oh. Are they, I mean, eminent domain, they're, they're compensating you, but whatever amount they determined, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, uh, the appraiser will be out here in about another month and I'll have my list. He'll have his list and we'll take it from there. Yeah. I get that list of trees that went in there. <laughs> oh man. That's uh yeah. Wow. I, you know, I, of all the things that we do in this country that I find to be unacceptable by the state, eminent domain is, is really one of the most insidious uh, because you basically just decided, well, you know, I want what you have and I'm going to take it and here's what you're getting. And if you don't like it, there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. So, um, you did a PDC with Jeff Lawton's online course. Have you applied permaculture design principles to your homestead layout and your farming operations? I have, yeah, in a big way. And, uh, you know, like so many people that, that they, they start developing their property kind of based on what looks good in a suburban context. You've got the lollipop trees out there alone and unafraid. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you're doing things based on how it looks from the road and, and not necessarily how it really all works and fits together. And, uh, the one thing, well, yeah. Jeff opened my eyes up about an awful lot of what we were doing. Some things we were actually doing right, but but some of the things that we were doing wrong is is we were really spread out. The whole idea of of managing your property in zones, um, I, I realized that, uh, you know, I was having to walk about 400 feet to get from one edge of zone one to the other edge of zone one. And so uh, one of the first changes that we made is we – we really compressed what was included in our zone one area. Um, a couple of other things, the uh, the solar aspect for the greenhouse. Yeah. A lot of my neighbors, we've got a big 30-foot by 72-foot greenhouse. It's right along the road. Um, and and you know, folks would never think of putting a greenhouse between the house and the road because you know, you're losing your curb appeal when you do that. Well, the uh, on the north side of the greenhouse is the road um hmm. so uh so the greenhouse itself it functions as a wonderful sound barrier it functions a, a, as a great visual barrier um here we are on a road that gets 5 6000 cars a day um and uh you know it, it's pretty quiet back here um yeah other aspects of managing zones we initially had fruit trees right around the, the house lot itself and uh, realizing that that stuff needed to be further away. Uh, that That's the thing that inspired me to do the uh, – we call it the front 40. It's the half acre. That's the, 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 the furthest to get to. I act like we're on 40 acres here. I mean we're only talking about a 200-foot walk to get there, but, but the uh, – um, we're endeavoring to do some market gardening here kind of in the style of, of J.M. and Curtis. And so we've totally turned our front yard into into a large garden plot. Um, the uh, uh, There are a couple of other things that 
um, how we amend our soils. Um, th- this this property before we moved on to it was being leased to a nearby farmer, conventional ag. So it was in soy and tobacco and wheat. Um, three acres. He had chemical burns out there from the pesticides and the herbicides. And uh, and one of the things that Jeff Lawton points out is that if uh, if you remediate your soil with livestock, um, even if you don't slaughter your uh, your animals and, and, and realize any kind of a harvest, just, just putting feed through them, 80% of what you're feeding them is going to land on the ground. It's going to rehabilitate the soil. So, yeah, we've got seven years of soil conditioning here uh, as, we, uh, as we roll out the produce stand. Very cool. I mean, I, I think I, I share a lot of the types of things that you're talking about with my own mistakes that permaculture really helped me with, like spreading stuff out. Like that's, and then trying to do like, too many things at once like you got like i've got a food forest going in over here and i'm gonna put swales over here and i'm gonna do this over there and this over here and i think what one of the things that permaculture design really does even if you i guess i would say put your own take on it is it makes you think in that zone mentality and it makes yeah. you think in a logical okay when i get up in the morning what am i going to do when i step outside of my door and how does that relate to the things that need to happen every day yeah and I think that that can be applied to anything, not just farms. That can be applied to your the way you lay out an office space, I guess, you know. But that was one of the things that, that really helped me. Um, go ahead. Yeah, one of the things that I've, I do periodically is I'll update my scale map of the property, and I, I put everything on it. Um, and and uh, where do I walk? Where do I drive? And um, uh, anything that new goes in um, – uh, it, it's like developing a town. You, you, everything that goes in needs to be on a roadway. It needs to be. You know, it, it's the importance of access, um, the importance of not boxing yourself in, not painting yourself into a corner. Uh, now, while I'm on that point, uh, we did start. We had the compact uh, four-wheel drive Kubota tractor with a front bucket, and and that was the right thing for us for the first four or five years. But as our density of perennials started to increase, it was getting really hard to maneuver that thing around without knocking anything down that we cared about. And so we stepped down to a BCS, and, and that's been a wonderful piece of equipment for us. Yeah. Tell me, tell us a little bit like how your operation runs. Like what are the activities you have going on there? What are you growing? How are you managing it? How are you marketing? All of that stuff. Oh, let's see. Um, the, uh, well, what we're doing right now and, and what we've done are two different answers. So, so during our time here, we have done a couple runs of pigs. We've had a couple of cows. We've done goats. We've had lots of chickens, and now we have fewer chickens. But right now, today, what we have, and I'm just looking out my window, and I'll just kind of go from left to right. We're, we'll, we're building a, a really handsome produce stand. Um, we've been reaching out to folks in the area, uh, and, and, and there's a, you know, a literal appetite and a craving for the kind of, uh, for the kind of business that we're, uh, we're, we're introducing. Um, we're in Lee County, North Carolina. Uh, now, if you go out west to Asheville, you go up a little bit north to the Raleigh-Durham area, uh, you're going to find some pockets of, uh, of folks that have been doing market gardening for, for quite a while. Um, but, but Lee County, we're, this is a community of late adopters. So, so the nice thing about that is um, 
all of this knowledge already exists and it's readily uh, accessible. And so we're just introducing it to folks that haven't heard about it because of you know where they are and what they've been paying attention to. So we've got the produce stand. We've got the large greenhouse propagating seedlings in there. Um, our goal is to raise the best salad that we can week after week as as much of the year as possible and, and bring in seasonal produce on top of that. So we've got... A uh, half dozen k- different kinds of lettuces, a couple different kinds of cucumbers, some some heritage type. We got some sweet corn, about a dozen kinds of tomatoes, a bunch of radishes. We're about to get started with the uh, the winter squashes and the pumpkins. Um, as far as the uh, perennials go, we've got uh, uh, a tall spindle apple orchard, um, and uh, we've uh, we put in 600 row feet of blackberries, um, at about 200 row feet of blueberries. Um, out in the food forest, we've got hazelnuts, persimmons, um, mulberries, a uh, couple of cherry trees out there. And um, we uh, we got switched on to pasture poultry and, and thought we were going to develop a, a business around that. And uh, you know, what, I, what I found was beyond just uh, taking care of our own needs as a family, um, yeah, that's just not where my interest is. I, I don't want to have a thousand birds that I'm taking care of every day. So uh, we have at any given time between 30 and 50 birds here here on the property. Um, and uh, yeah, like I talked about, we're, we're trying to uh, incorporate as much of the teachings as we can from, from Curtis, uh, yeah, Curtis Martin, place running back for the New York Giants, uh, from Curtis Stone and, and, and J.M., um, uh, Elliot Coleman. Um, and thanks to this show, you know, these are people that I know of, um, and, and people that I've been paying a lot of attention to with what they write and, and, and the videos that they put out. Can you talk a little bit about like what have you specifically taken from some of the folks you mentioned? Uh, maybe each individually. Uh, you mentioned Jean Claude Fortier, uh, Curtis Stone, and uh, I'm sorry, Jean Claude, Jean Martin, <laughs> Jean Claude Van Damme taught you to kick. You know, cactuses, whatever. No, I'm sorry, uh, John Martin Fortier, Curtis Stone, and Elliot Coleman. Like, wh- which, what have you taken kind of as a, a thing from each of those people? Yeah, I'll start with Curtis first. I am emulating his processing house. Uh, we've got uh, a metal building centrally located, and uh, we, we've, we, we, we've done the walk-in cooler. We, we found the, the shell on Craigslist for about 1200 bucks, 11 feet by 8 feet, 10 feet tall. We've got a 15,000 BTU AC we just mounted on the ceiling and, 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 and the cool butt um, um, thermostat. We built his drying rack. We built his, his washing rack. Uh, we built his, his bubbler. Um, and so, you know, that certainly has Curtis's fingerprints all over it. Um, the, uh, the, the actual market gardening, the, the gardening aspect of it, uh, I probably borrow more from J.M. and, and Elliot Coleman than, than, than I do Curtis. Um, just uh, we haven't been around long enough to specialize and become a price maker, uh, and, and so we're we're endeavoring to uh, to grow most of the things that people would expect to find in the produce section of a grocery store. 
Uh, and yeah, you've got the concept of loss leaders. So Elliot Coleman acknowledges that, yeah, a market gardener's not going to make a whole lot of money on sweet corn. But if that's one of the things that attracts a customer to your produce stand, and while they're there, they buy a bunch of other stuff that is profitable, yeah, it's a good lure. Um, oh, who else do I have? Well, I think that was it. John Martin, Elliot, and uh, Curtis Stone. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, the, my my bed prep that I do is is right out of JM's book and his videos. So, you know, the the, the tarping, the uh, the BCS with the with the power harrow. Oh my gosh, I love that power harrow. It's the best and best implement that that anyone's ever ever created. Um, yeah, that's about it. Yeah, I, I think it's amazing what all of these people have done, and I think that, like, most people are not going to go, okay, I'm going to be the next, you know, Jean-Martin Fortier, or I'm going to be the next Curtis Stone. They're going to take the components of what works for them and then say, okay, now how does that apply to me based on my resources, my location, et cetera? You know, Curtis has spent a lot of time riding around on a bicycle farming other people's backyards. Yeah. And if you have enough land to farm, then why would, why would you do that? Yeah. On the other well, hand, if you can't get access to land, well, then there's your solution. So I think that we all have to adapt based on our own individual markets, needs, accessibility, resources, etc. Yeah, you just you, you talked about Curtis there, and it just made me realize the most obvious thing that the whole idea of turning my front yard, and I've got a third of an acre in front of the house that's in production, as well as what's over to the side. That's it, it's really being exposed to Curtis that told me that. That's an acceptable thing to do. Well, I think like one of his things, and it probably helps you, is like so everybody wants to hide everything, right? Well, his method of being mostly out in other people's yards gave him access to customers. Yeah, because they were like, well, "What are you doing?" And I think once he got off, you know, running around on a bicycle, he got this kind of little like a little cute truck thing, and people were like, "That's cool. I want to know more about that," you know. And and that gave him access to people because he now does have a fairly you know, it's not a, a big piece of land, but a fairly substantial lot and his own house and his own greenhouse. And he made enough money spin farming to basically be able to make that investment. So even he <laughs> made that transition. But I think that's the thing. I was like, what can you do to be visible enough to not attract the air of the state, but yet attract interest of the people? Well, I think that b- besides being above board and being on the right side of all of the ordinances, if you can just operate in a manner that's that's ethical um, and and quite frankly pleasing to the eye, this is a good-looking property to drive past. Uh, you, you go past our house, you you look right, you look left, uh, and and you can tell that whoever lives here cares an awful lot about what what goes on here. And uh, I, yeah, I'm a Yankee transplant living in living in Dixie. So, you know, there, there's there's a limit to to how you know how strong the embrace of this outsider is going to go, um, but um, but I've got to tell you, I, I, I go over to the hardware store, and this is one of these old time general stores. The hardware store is my next door neighbor. It's a quarter mile, uh, uh, you know, into town, and uh, you go in there, you, you you talk to folks, and you know. And the barber across the road. Uh, I mean, this is this is like Mayberry where we live. Everything's here. It's a village. It's 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 a great place to be. 
Um, but, uh, you know, cordial relationships, talk to people, be friendly. Um, yeah, if they ask you questions, you know, give, you know, give them, uh, give them the time to, uh, to give them a good answer. Um, yeah, somebody, uh, somebody gets on Facebook, gets a little bit of trouble, needs some help. Yeah, go ahead and pitch in and, and, and be a good neighbor. Um, so, I, I guess what it really comes down to, it's, it's the importance of community and, and, and making your own investments. Um, yeah, I've kind of taken this to, to another approach on this. I've, I've got involved in, in local politics. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to run on for, for something, but, but, but for, it, it's good to be on a first name basis with lawmakers. So if anything comes up, you got a guy on speed dial that you can talk to and say, you know, what do I do about this? Yeah, or why are you even thinking about this? Yeah, exactly. You know. Oh, and that's that's the other thing too is, um, if you live in a small town and you go to the to, to the council meetings, the first thing you'll notice is that nobody shows up. Um, if you're new in a community, show up to those things, and you'll get some good one-on-one time with. With, with the elected officials of your community and, you know, befriend them. Uh, you certainly want to have those guys on your good side and, and not have your first encounter with any of them be, be ugly. Well, and so what that makes me think of when I, when I lived in Pennsylvania, we lived in it's sort of a kind of a, a rural-ish community, I guess, uh, subdivision, Minimum one acre lot size, so people yeah. were spread out. It was it was a really nice place. It looked a lot like a Norman Rockwell type of place. And there was a guy um, at the end of the road, right out by the main road, who was a retiring truck driver, and he had decided he wanted to put in a garage. And so he needed a zoning variance because it was close to the road. Mm-hmm. This is a place that's pretty easy to do most things, but in this one instance, to put it on the I guess it would have been the east side of his house versus the west side of his house. He needed this zoning variance. So he got an architect involved. They made up a model. I mean, they went all out. He went down to the the town council meeting and said, I need this variance. Here's what I want to do. Here's my mock-up, what have you. And the like, I guess the the mayor, whoever's the head of the council, whatever, says, you know, I, I don't see any problem with this. All the other council members are like, I, this, this seems like a reasonable thing to ask for and this lady stood up and says, well, I have a problem with it. I am from, and I don't remember the name, it was something, something estates that to this day, I don't even know the name of it, <laughs> that when they developed it, you know, 30 years before I moved in, they called it that. And I speak for everyone, and we do not want this garage, and we do not want to be having to tell people to turn left when they get out to the house with the garage on the road, and we don't want this thing. And basically that one person put a stop to this guy's plans. <laughs> And so he ended up talking to a lot of us later saying, I didn't know you guys had any problem with this. We're like, we didn't know you were doing it, and we didn't know that this was going to happen. So the person that stood up and verbally threw up got what they wanted. In the end, this ends in a good story, got what they wanted in a bad way for them. So what he ended up doing was saying, you know, I spent money on all this now, and I don't have enough to put in a typical garage. And I can do whatever I want on the other side of our house. So he put in a huge storage building. It looked like a, a small aircraft hangar. Uh, so Agnes got an aircraft hangar <laughs> instead of a garage that she didn't want to have. And uh, so it worked out for him, but it, it really showed me the power in these small communities that 
you don't have to really even be involved, but at, at some point you may want to show up. And I think a, yep. a bigger thing is like if you're asking for something like that, you might want to take a couple people with you. That you, you know, if you talked and you're like, well, I don't have a problem with this, it would have been interesting what would have happened if there was, you know, a dozen of us down there, and it would have, it would have been there was about 30 households in this divi- subdivision. It would have been really easy for him to get 12 of us to go down there with him if we knew he was doing it. And to have 12 people go, well, I, I live right next to her, and I, I don't mind this at all. I don't know what she's talking about. She doesn't speak for us. It probably would have been a totally different outcome. And, and I think a lot of things with small-scale agriculture, that's the kind of things that need to happen. You know me. I'm a political atheist. But when you can actually talk to the person that's making the decision, and they can't just tell you to go away, a lot of times you can have an influence not so much to get things done, but to prevent things that shouldn't happen from being done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so to, to generalize your point, it's it's about empowering others to be your advocate. Um, when we first landed here, one of the first people that I, I met was our our town manager, a real great guy. He'd been around for decades. He finally retired a couple of years ago. But I was talking about being in the ETJ a little bit earlier. Um, we are one lot outside of the corporate jurisdiction of Broadway, North Carolina. If we were across the road, if we were one lot to the east, uh, we would be in town and, and we wouldn't be able to do anything that we get to do. And, and the problem is there, there's no line in the road that says uh, now crossing into the ETJ. So you've got some, some long-term uh, folks that have been around for, for quite a while and they've probably been told you know, what they could and could not do and they're seeing the Bernards uh, out here getting cows and putting up greenhouses and everything else. And uh, yeah, the town manager told me that uh, the first six months that, that we were here, he was getting phone calls almost daily, people complaining about what we were doing and, and how you know that it's not allowed. And, and here's the town manager saying, yep, they're, everything they're doing is, is, is in accordance with the municipal codes. They're, they're good to go. Don't you worry about them. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's good to have friends, especially in, I think, like one of the things that we have is a blessing here, and, and I really don't want it to change, but we're in like this unincorporated area. The, the problem with that, I talked about this yesterday with somebody who wrote in about you know annexation, is we don't really have anybody to stand up for us. Yeah. Except ourselves, which, by the way, we don't get a choice. Like if they ever, if somebody decides to annex us, we don't get to vote on it. Like, let's mm-hmm. say Lakeside. If Lakeside decided they wanted to annex our area, they might put it to a vote of Lakeside residents. But since we're not residents, we wouldn't get a vote. Yeah, and for us, that's where being a bona fide farm gives us the cloak of protection because we cannot be annexed in a way to circumvent the fact that we're a bona fide farm with all the protections thereof. Yeah, absolutely. Because what I was saying yesterday is like, so if you think about it, if Lakeside or Azel or someone like that decides they want to annex us, they're doing it because they want to grab our tax base. Mm-hmm. That's that's what they're doing. So the people that get our tax base now is the county. Well, the county would still get their piece of our taxes. We would just pay more taxes to this new city. Yep. And then the county would no longer have to expend sheriff department resources to maintain this area, they would turn it over to whoever picked it up. So the county really wouldn't have a problem with it. And the city would only do it when they did the math and figured out that it was a net win for them. So the problem we have is, you know, we don't have the right to vote against it. 
And it, it, it's a pretty insidious thing. I don't mm. think it's a a real possible. I wouldn't say possibility. Possibly, I'd say it's not a real probability. I kind of did the math myself when I moved here and <laughs> made sure that it was undesirable. Like you don't really get enough to make it worth doing this. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of made sure that my neighbors were the kind of people like, yeah, we might be on the roof with ARs before we let that happen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like this. Not only is it not worth doing, they're, they're going to be pissed. Um, and they're not going to go quietly, but it's it's a real problem, I think. And I like seeing things like you have where you're at, where hey, this is a farm. It was a farm when I got here. I made it a farm. It's been a farm. You don't get to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that that's a good thing. But I've seen a lot of stuff go down that I'm not real happy about. Uh, you mentioned some of the the people like Jean Martin and and Curtis that you heard about through TSP. Are there any other people that you became aware of or ended up in contact with because of the Survival Podcast? Yeah, it's kind of like uh, nine degrees of, uh, of, of Joel Saladin. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I got introduced to, to Joel through um, the, the, the Fresh uh, documentary. And then again, you know, the TSP uh, you know, did a, a deeper dive into it. And then... Um, through uh, through TSP, I learned about Diego Garcia, and then I started listening to his podcast, and I learned about a guy named John McCauley who lives up north of Raleigh who actually had been an intern on, on Joel's farm. And a year and a half ago, I go up for a half-day workshop with John learning learning how to do pasture poultry, and uh, he's somebody that I still reach out to when I need, uh, when I need tips and advice. Um, yeah, of course, um, there's uh, the online PDC with Jeff Lawton. Um, oh, I'm at a loss to uh, to talk. Well, oh shoot, Rose Hill Farm, um, Ray Tyler's place. Um, you know, through TSP, I learned about Curtis Stone. Through Curtis Stone, I learned about Michael Kilpatrick. Through Michael Kilpatrick, I learned about Ray Tyler, and and now I'm I'm, I'm talking to Ray on a uh, on a recurring basis to uh, uh, you know. Yeah, use him as my farm coach. So everyone always talks about how small the world is. I, I think the world's a big place, but we get into these orbits where we keep seeing and, and, and hearing uh, about the the same people over time. And um, you know, that's that's. I'll, I'll tell you, your your effort to create a community around TSP Jack, uh, yeah, you've succeeded. Yeah, it always makes me feel good when I hear stuff like that. And I think what we've actually done is we created like. A nucleus community, and then like all of these sub communities, some of which I'm not even aware of, that like splinter off and do their yeah. own thing. And I, I think that's when you're actually doing something that has its kind of own senses, almost like a life form, because then it's reproducing. And then like I, I'm willing to bet somewhere out there, there's a very tight knit group of people doing good stuff together that don't even know there's a connection back here. And and, and I'm totally cool with that because that mm-hmm. means you're doing it right. Yep, yep. Self-replicating systems, that that kind of is permaculture. So I, I think that's awesome. Um, you know, we talked mostly about kind of your farming stuff. Can you talk about maybe some of the preps that you, you've done? Like like how how do you see yourself as a prepper today? Has that changed? What have you? Yeah, there's a spell there that, you know, my wife could tell that I just listened to another podcast based on what I just brought home from the store. <laughs> so... So you, you come through the you come through the side door, and, and what used to be the the, the coat closet, our, our battery backup system is on the bottom third of that, and and it's our liquor closet to the top third of that because you know if, 
if the lights go out, you, you, you need to restore power, and you can't do a whole lot anyway, so you might as well just kick back and, and, and knock a few down. Um, yeah, we've got the, uh, I forget what they're called, the little radios with the infrared uh, uh, detectors, alert zone one, zone two. We, we got, you know, we got those. Um, oh, this was a pretty good omen. The weekend that we closed on this house back in 2011 was when the uh, F3 tornado rolled through here about two miles away. Um, and, and that wound up being a terrible year for, for power outage. So, I mean, just we had never had a, a, a an electric generator before we got one. And uh, and so by – oh, yeah, and, and it's just a little thing. So you've got a choice between an electric stove and a propane stove. We got the propane stove. And with the battery backup system, we're, we're able to, to plug the uh, the electric component of the gas stove into the battery back up into the battery bank um and, and so everybody always thinks about well you, you can at least use the burners we can use the whole stove because you know we've, we've got electric electricity um for 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 that component of the stove it's uh, it's a pretty good way to go um yeah we got into firearms uh, i got stationed here and then i got uh, assigned to the pentagon and my wife said uh, if you're going to leave me here uh, two weeks at a time, we're getting guns, we're getting big dogs. Um, so we, we got guns, and, you know, we went shooting, and, you know, we, 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 we went to training together. And that's another thing I'll talk about, too, is uh, one of the recurring issues with, with your podcast is how to get your spouse on board. Um, and I've got an answer to that question. I know this isn't going to work for everyone because not everyone – gets divorced not everyone remarries after divorce but on my match.com profile i actually talked about my interest in self-sufficiency and in lifestyle design and so uh so my wife tanya answered that ad and uh 11 years later uh it's sometimes it's hard to tell who's who's leading and, and who's following because um in many cases, she's pulling just as hard as I am. And in some cases, like when she gives you the phone call and says, I've got three goats in the back, I'm about an hour out, and we, we've never had goats, you're like, okay, I guess I'll uh, throw some fencing together. <laughs> Figure that out, huh? Yeah. I think there's something said for that, like going into relationships uh, eyes open. I don't think it really matters if you were previously married. I think that that's, that's good advice for anyone. Um, I think where a lot of friction comes in is, well, you weren't into all this crap when I met you. That's that's where it really, you know, like... That's right. Because there's the old joke that, uh, uh, you know, a, a woman and a man get together, and the woman hopes that the man will change, and he won't. And the man hopes that the woman, uh, you know, will stay the same, and she, and she doesn't. But I think that, you know, either side can actually have, you know, a major change to their lifestyle and, and what it is they really want in the world. Um but I, I do think that kind of moving in, in this direction in some way is being innately more human. I, I, I find it ironic that you'll talk to people who go, you're one of them crazy preppers. I'm like, I'm not saying crazy about what I do, but do you have life insurance? Well, yeah. Well, why? Because I could die. Okay. So then having extra food because you might not be able to get some is crazy? You know, like at least if you die, I mean, I, I'm not advising this, but if you die, your problems are gone. Or you can sit there and all be hungry together, you know. Like, and it just amazes me that people even think that 
you know, basic preparedness that even our government says you should do is, is somehow wacky or something. Yeah, the, the people that I, uh, I spent time with and, you know, fellow soldiers, mostly field grade officers and Department of the Army civilians, people in their 40s and 50s, um, yeah, whenever I talk to them about what we're doing, and we've had them out to the house for, for, you know, barbecues and stuff, they totally get what we're doing. And, you know, you know how you kind of do that, that foot shuffle when, when you're feeling kind of, kind of yeah. guilty about, you know, there's something that you're not doing that you, you ought to be doing. That little you foot know, shuffle you do when you're 15 at a dance yeah. and you're thinking about kissing the girl and she's thinking about kissing you, but neither one will do it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I, I get some of that foot shuffling when I'm talking to folks about what we're doing, and and they look at me and they say, "What you're doing totally makes sense. We need to get get into a little bit of that ourselves." I think that when like when most people actually realize what it's all about, they get really excited about it. We have people come out here and they look at what we're doing. They're like, "Well, can I do that?" I'm like, "Well, I I don't think anybody's going to stop you." You know, I mean, like if that's what you want to do, then maybe you could do that. And that's why we've tried to, you know, as an educational facility, we've tried to put in as many different divergent systems as we can, which honestly is not the best course of action for us, mm -hmm. right? It's much easier to be very targeted in what you're doing, build one thing and expand out from it. But our hope is that when someone comes here and says, well, all I got is this little backyard, well, then go do this. Well, I got all this. Thing. Okay, you can do that. Well, you know, it doesn't rain much, so I got problems with the irrigation. Okay, we'll do this. And I think that there is a solution to just about every design challenge out there. Uh, and then the preparedness aspect is really the same thing. You know, well, I live in an apartment. Well, okay, then you need to be thinking a little bit more about possibly having to leave. You need to be being more space conscious than if you had a house. But in the end, you, you still have the same needs every other human being has, which is mainly food, safety, water, medical supplies, and comfort items. Those are the main things and some sort of backup energy components to your life where at least you can see what's going on and maybe boil some water. Mm -hmm. It ain't like it's that hard or nothing, but it's yeah. amazing how... I think what it is, is, some people want it to be hard because it gives them an excuse not to do it. Yeah. I mean, you had to have seen that in dealing with soldiers in the Army. I know I did, and I was only in for three years. <laughs> but you, you'd see a, 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 a soldier, and you're like, okay, we need to get this done. Well, and they start explaining to you how complicated it is. All I was asking you to do is wind up a freaking extension cord, dude. That's not that hard, you know. <laughs> you know, oh, you want it to circle. Well, that's how, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a real story, by the way. God told me he didn't know how to make a circle <laughs> out of a cord where it wasn't all tangled up. Like, well, you fixed to get some training, you know. And I think that, like, if you can convince yourself that something's difficult, you can give yourself an excuse not to do something that you know in your heart you really should do. Because I, I don't know a person in the world that if they really sat down and thought about it, especially once you have a family, w would really say it's not a good, it, 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 it's, it's, it's not important for me to make sure that my family has the basic necessities if there's some sort of a problem. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I, I can't think of a good, I can't think of a good way to, to, to object to that, I guess, is what I'm saying. So, um, what, what, what is your advice? to anyone who says, you know what, I really like uh, what David's doing. I really like the fact that he's basically gone into full-time farming 
or maybe they don't even want that. They just want a piece of that, or maybe they just want a good homestead. And they, they're, they're, they're trying to get themselves to the point where they'll take that leap and do it. Well, what advice would you give them? Yeah, that's a that's a fun question to be asked because um, you know to give an answer you just you, you reflect over um, seven years of, of practical experience on this property and you know another ten plus thinking about this stuff um, and, and the first way I'll answer it is to say you know farming is, is a natural place for for a lot of us to wind up but it's it, it, it's not mandatory um, so. If all you want to do is just produce enough to feed yourself and, and, and you know, put into storage um, through the shoulder months, then then good on you. Uh, don't don't feel any remorse about not doing more than that. But uh, but here's the advice: number one, and you had a couple of uh, recent shows that talked about this. Um, yeah, buying property is not a dick measuring contest. <laughs> um, you can do a hell of a lot. On, on half an acre. Um, you, you talked about how three acres is about enough for you to manage on, on some days. Uh, we're on 4.6 here, and that's a little too much, so thankfully the government's going to take half of that acre, get us down to four. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but but really, the, the productive portion of our land is is really only about three acres. And, and unless you're running livestock through, unless you're, you're keeping any of it in wilderness or, or as, as a woodlot, yeah, two three acres. I I'd say you don't need to look, you know, at much more than that. Um, you know, we through your your teachings, you you talk about the importance of access and structure and uh, and structures and and water and, and and all of that's correct. Um, you know, for ourselves here, we're we're kind of on a plateau. Um, and so uh, other than doing water catchment off of the roofs, which we still have not implemented, that's on the list of things we, we need to get to. Um, but, you know, we just don't have enough catchment to, to have large ponds where we are, but we're on city water, so the, the, the water piece is squared away. Um, I would say, you know, kind of transitioning into concrete advice, Um Go with temporary structures for as long as you can possibly get away with it. Um, but the longer that you can put off putting a post in concrete and, and making fence very difficult to move, the, the, the longer you can put that off, the happier you're, you're going to be because uh, over your first three, four years, you, you're going to have days that you just wake up and you look at your property through new eyes and you can't believe that you're the same person that made a decision to, to put something where it just doesn't make any sense for it. And you're going to go out and you're, you're going to move stuff. You're going to chop trees down. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, we always talk about going slow. Do one project at a time. And the thing is, you know, Jack, you and I, we, we, we've learned a couple of hard lessons. But we also both know that if we told our younger selves to go slow one thing at a time, you know that neither one of us would, would listen to ourselves saying that. Um, and, and so what, what you got to do is understand that work in process is, is the killer of, of dreams and ambition. Um, limit the number of things that, that you're working on simultaneously. Um, so... It, the worst thing to do is get started with a project and, and your time or your, or your money runs out and the thing's only half done. So, so 
there are a bunch of things that you can do that won't cost you a whole lot of a whole lot of money, so there's not a whole lot of risk with that. But then there's other stuff that uh, if, if the project is only half done, you're not going to get any any uh, any benefit from it, like like a greenhouse. Uh, you, you put up the frame of a greenhouse and you run out of money before you can cover it with either shade cloth or plastic. Uh, what good's that frame going to do you? Um, so um, I, I'd also say invest early on in <laughs> livestock panels and T-posts. Um, you will never have too many T-posts. Um, man, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, a great merchandise giveaway for a new a new homesteader. How about five hundred six foot T posts? You know what could you do with with those? <laughs> a lot. Yeah, I, I mean I completely agree, and I think there is a big thing to be, you know, be said for like if you're gonna start a project, make sure you have the the time and the budget to finish it. Because yeah, I, you you think about that a big frame of a greenhouse sitting out there, it does nothing. It, it does absolutely nothing. Whatever time and money went into it is lost at that point, unless you can, like you said, finish it up. So I think that's a, that's a really good piece of advice. Yeah, and it, it's even uh, if, if just sitting there was the least of your worries, that that would be one of the most benign impacts. But you're going to look at your window. You're going to walk past this half finished thing every single day, and it's just going to keep beating you in the face, just just reminding you. Uh, of work that's undone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, man, hey, I, I appreciate you being with us today, dude. It was a, it was a great conversation with you. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and share what you've been up to, uh, David. And uh, and thank you so much for that. And, and thank you for being a you know almost ten year listener of the show. Now we were coming up on our ten year anniversary, and uh, there's you know, there can't be that many people that have been here since the beginning. Uh, so I really appreciate you being uh, part of our community for so long. I appreciate you being uh, you know, being at the, the the core of this community and 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 doing what you're doing with the TSP. Uh, I mean, it, it isn't just about your podcast, but it's about the introductions that you're able to make with other members of the community that that keep this thing going and and, and allow people to progress in their own journeys. So thank you, Jack. And do you have any online way people can kind of keep up with what you're doing? <laughs> oh, we had a we had a web page. We took it down. So if you go to it, you're just going to get the 404 message. Um, right now, the the best way that you can find us is on Facebook. Just just go in there and do a search for Off Broadway Productions. We're in Broadway, North Carolina, so they'll yeah, we'll, we'll play on the name for the name of the business. Um, but uh, we 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 post pictures and and, and keep kind of a Kind of a running update of everything that we're up to there. Um, and, uh, you know, once we actually get a website back up, uh, you can go to the Facebook page and it'll point you back to the website. So go to Facebook. Very cool, man. And I'll, I'll look that up and make sure there's a, a link in today's show notes. And again, uh, David, thanks for being with us on the Survival Podcast today. Thanks, Jack. All right, great interview with a great guy, and I hope that it kind of inspires you. I know a lot of folks out there have dreams like this, similar to this, or you have dreams about other things that involve self-sufficiency, self-employment, entrepreneurship, homesteading, what have you. And just, I'll say, hold on to your thoughts about dreams until we get to our song of the day. Before we do that, let me remind you of a way that you can help support this show. It's the super easy, no-pain way to do it. 
All it is is when you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com first. And you can see all the reviews that I've done on Amazon. If you see a product reviewed there, I own it, I use it, I spend my money on it, or I wouldn't suggest that you do the same. And you can go there and check out everything and even just look at the deals today. As long as you go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Today, the product of the day I have for you, I'm bringing back around again. This is a product made by a company called Otium, O-T-I-U-M. It is a Bluetooth FM transmitter. This thing costs 18 bucks. I have a 2005 F-350 pickup truck, diesel. It has a factory crappy stereo in it, and the CD player thing in it doesn't even work. Um, I have thought about going down to Best Buy or something like that, having that big old honking thing ripped out of it and putting an expensive stereo in it. And I realize that I just don't use my truck that much, and I can't justify that expense. So a couple of years ago, a listener sent me a link to this little thing, this Odium transmitter. And I'm like, it was 20 bucks at the time. It's dropped two, two bucks in price since I first featured it. And I'm like, you know, Amazon's return policy is if it doesn't work, put it in the box and send it back, and they'll give you your money back. So what do I got to lose? So I got this little thing, plugged it in, synced my phone right up. It comes with Chinglish instructions. It really does. But they've got this, like, British dude that could be Jane Bond that goes, paired, right? When you pair it, pairs easily. Start playing my music on it. It goes to every FM frequency there is, so you can find an empty station. You find an empty station, you set it there. The best thing to do to prevent bleed over, turn the volume on the transmitter all the way up. That makes it have the, the loudest signal. And then control the volume with your radio dial and your phone. And once you do that, you can even make phone calls and what have you. You can even dump a whole bunch of your music on an SD card and slop it in a little SD slot. It's got an, uh, an auxiliary port where you could jack a device right into it if you want to save battery and not use your Bluetooth or what have you. The best part about it, to me, is that it has a USB charging port as well. So when you plug it in your, you know, your 12-volt connector, your cigarette lighter connector, whatever you want to call it, you can still charge devices, hook up a USB hub, whatever. And I think that's awesome. And you can make phone calls, and you can hear, you know, and hear them on the speaker and what have you. When I'm using the Zello channel in my truck, I jack onto that with Bluetooth, and I can hear all the Zello people over my my speakers, and I'm still talking directly into the phone for the mic. It's very cool. It's very cool. You can check it out again for 18 bucks. I don't know anything else that does as good a job. My only caution would be check and make sure you have some empty space on your FM dial. I have like two stations here in DFW that don't have anything on it that are just light static, and those work with this. And occasionally I start getting bleed over into one of them, so I have presets to both of them on my stereo because uh, that does work. Um, it's a huge market. So the bigger your market, the more crowded your airways the less frequencies you'll have available. I really wish they'd make this thing in AM. I know it wouldn't be full stereo or real stereo or actual stereo anymore, but it would still come out of two speakers and still be good, and there'd be a lot more open frequency. This is the best thing i found, the Odium Bluetooth transmitter, 18 bucks. But remember, whether you want this thing or not, because most of you have newer vehicles, I, I don't need one of these, obviously, for our 4Runner, um, but no matter what you do, if you shop through tspaz.com, you help support the show and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day is by ELO. That's right, Electric Light Orchestra. Uh, and this song is uh, not the ELO you may remember. Though. It is the ELO. What am, I, what am I saying? It's not from the time frame you probably think of when you think of ELO. When you think of ELO, it's the 70s, right? 
This song actually was released very recently, at least recently in the world of music when you think of ELO. I mean, if I told you 1995, you'd be like, that's pretty recent for ELO. How about 2015, and 20 years after 95, right? Three years ago. Uh, it was on an album they released in 2015 called Alone in the Universe. And it, it is a really awesome song. Um, and it's called When I Was a Boy. And remember I said to hold on your thoughts about dreams. Uh, this childhood reverie about wanting to be a musician was the first song that Jeff Lynne wrote for Alone in the Universe. He told the son, when I was a boy, I had a dream about all the things I'd like to be. As soon as I was in my bed, music played inside my head. So all this guy ever wanted to do was make music. And the reason I said hold on your thoughts about dreams is how powerful they are and how much we lose of that power as we age. When we're kids, we believe we can do anything. My son was like three foot nothing, little white kid who couldn't jump. And he was going to play in the NBA and be a basketball star like Michael Jordan. You think for a minute that I told him he wouldn't? Now, he actually turned into like a six-foot-two pretty good baseball or basketball player, but he wasn't going to be in the NBA. But he had that belief, and that made him a better basketball player than he could have ever been if somebody would have crapped on that dream and told him he couldn't do it. What happens as we age is our, our, our bravado, our courage, our willingness to do stupid shit, And our dreams get tempered with real-world experience and wisdom. And that's good until the point where we start to actually have a negative effect because we start to believe what we want to accomplish can no longer be done. So when I listen to this song, even though I know that this song was written by Jeff Lynne about his own personal dream about being a musician, which he eventually achieved, it really is very universal to me. It's about anybody with a dream. Not letting go of it just because they grew up. And understanding that in general, not always, but in general in life, things work this way. You'll never have more freedom to try to achieve what you want to achieve than you do right now. Now, eventually, when people take that path, they end up with more and more and more freedom. But if you don't start the journey, that's what I'm talking about. If you don't start the journey today... A year from now, you will have less ability, less freedom, and more difficulty starting the journey. It really is that simple. I think most people that are like in their 40s, if they're not happy with their life, they think back to when they're like 19 and they go, you dumbass, young me. If I could go back in time, I'd kick your ass and make you take the path you wanted to take back then because it would have been so easy for you. We kind of forget maybe it wouldn't have been that easy, but it would have been doable. It would have been doable. But today is the next day, right, in your life. And it's either the first step on the journey of your dreams or another step sliding back. Remember what I've always said from the very beginning of doing the show, almost 10 years now. If you're not working daily on your personal freedom and liberty, you are backsliding into the, the slavery that society dictates for you. Life is a sliding scale. You don't get to remain static. You either advance or life pushes you back. Hold on to your dreams. Check out this song. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Hoping you figure out how to live that better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. When I was a boy, I had a dream. All about the things I'd like to be. 
Just wanna sing, do you love me, baby? When I was a boy, I 